Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour here on the America Out Loud Network. Uh, I'm Randy Sutton. I am your host. I'm a retired police lieutenant from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, 34 years of police service, the author of numerous books, including A Cop's Life and the soon to be released, Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety. And I'm also the founder of The Wounded Blue, the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. This show is dedicated to the physical, emotional, and spiritual welfare of America's law enforcement community, America's heroes. I'm happy to be here with you, and um, I've got a great guest waiting for us. But of course, each week we do what's called our reality check, where we talk about um, the the real life and death situations that are taking place in uh, in America today. Now, normally, I read and memorialize a line of duty deaths that occurred since last week, but I'm happy to report that for one of the very few times, there have been no line of duty deaths in law enforcement. Shocking, really, and one, something we celebrate um, here at, uh, at you know, the Wounded Blue Hour. However, don't think that it isn't, that it isn't, that the violence isn't occurring on a, a, a level that is uh, shocking. Um, so far this year, that is up until November 1st, 325 American law enforcement officers have been shot in the line of duty, 40 of them murdered. That's up from 2020, almost 24%. So we're seeing the attacks, the shooting attacks on America's law enforcement increasing. Um, and the reason that, that perhaps the death toll isn't as high is because of ballistic vests, it's because of technology, it's because of the medical technology. And unfortunately, the other part of this reality is that law enforcement officers have been really pulled back from proactive policing. And that is also a significant factor, although you won't hear the mainstream media talking about it. But 325 cops, Shot in the line of duty. Astounding number. Um, we're going to get to our guest, and I want to read a headline that uh, that came out a short period of time ago, and then we're going to we're going to bring in um, retired Sergeant Matt Hunter. It's from the Des Moines Des Moines Register. Jury awards two point six million dollars to Des Moines police officer fired after PTSD fueled fracas. Now, I, I, I personally don't care for that fueled fracas. I don't know even what the hell that means, but I'm going to just uh, read you the first paragraph. A former sergeant fired by the Des Moines Police Department will receive a $2.6 million payout after a jury found that the city discriminated against him for post-traumatic stress disorder. He suffered after the suicide of another officer who was a close friend and former beat partner, his lawyers say. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I think that will whet your appetite. And I'm going to introduce you to retired Des Moines Police Sergeant Matt Hunter. Matt, thanks so much for joining me here at the Wounded Blue Hour. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the case itself, I want, I want to just 
go back into your into your past a little bit. Well, where where did you grow up? I grew up in Iowa. I uh, am from Urbandale, which is a suburb of the city of Des Moines, the capital city of our state. What was it that did you know? You know, in your younger days, in your childhood, that you were going to be a police officer. Was that a goal of yours? It was. Um, ever since I grew up, I know you hear. We, we all, if you know, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where you kind of have that calling to the profession. So that was definitely um, throughout my childhood and, and into college, that is, that is my end goal was to be a, a police officer. And you achieved it. You achieved that goal. When did, I did. When did you, how old were you when you joined the department? I was 25 years old when I joined the Des Moines Police Department. All right. So just for reference, you know, that's a, you're, you're mature enough. You, you're not a kid. I, I was 19 when I got hired and I realized <laughs> the decisions I made as a 19 year old cop, I look back now and go, Oh, Ooh, ow. Ooh. So you were 25. You, uh, you had already gone to, gone to college and yet you still had that desire. You still, you never lost that drive to become a cop. So tell me how you chose the Des Moines Police Department. Well, to be honest with you, my goal was to go somewhere warm, to be honest. <laughs> However, I applied to the Des Moines Police Department. You know, it's a suburb of where I grew up. It's the biggest city in the state of Iowa. And so, you know, it it, it was something that would give me enough um, fulfillment. It, it's, you know, a big enough department where you could move around and you can experience a lot of different things. So that's why I chose to apply there. Um, I got hired. If I didn't get hired, I was going to go out to the coast somewhere. Um, however, I was, I was thrilled to death to be able to stay home where most of my family is. Yeah, that's important. That's important. Having the, having your family there as a, um, support system, um, can't be overemphasized enough. And I'm sure that as you progress through your career and all of the trials and tribulations that go along with any police career, that that family support was uh, was really important. Absolutely. So tell me this. Um, uh, tell me about your social situation. Married? Children? Um, finalizing a divorce at this point. I've got three children, um, ages 19, or now she's turning 20 here in a couple of days. So 20. And um, I've got a daughter who's 20, and then, uh, another daughter who's 14, and a son who's 12. Wow! So you're still you still got some youngins. Um, yes. And I am I am going to venture a, a wild guess here, and say that um, the experiences that you have uh, unfortunately had to endure over the last few years probably played a role in um, in your relationships. Absolutely. Um, after going through losing my partner and then to go on and, and uh, lose my identity through my job, that definitely played a huge factor in, in the divorce and um, you know, a strain on the entire family. Yeah, we're gonna get more into that as we progress. But um, so I wanna go to the time, back to when you joined the police department. You did um, 21 years and you retired as a sergeant. Uh, after after you after you went through all of the hardships that we're going to talk about here shortly, uh, I here's what I want to ask you: When you look back on your career, when you look back and you, you, every cop has moments that that really 
had an impact, some positive, some negative. What was one of the, the moments in your career that you really felt that, you know what, I really did the right thing by taking this job? A moment of joy, a moment of, of fulfillment, of satisfaction. Can you remember one or two of them? Absolutely. Um, I was uh, off duty working a job in uniform um, for a convenience store where we were providing security. And I had a gentleman come up to me and he stated that, well, he asked me if I remembered him. And after all those calls, after all those years, um, you know, I asked him, you know, refresh my memory. So he talks about a domestic uh, situation with his parents where he and his parents weren't getting along. He was a young teenager and um, he stated that I had responded to the house and he remembered me and he remembered those words and he stated that ever since then he had never gotten in trouble and he turned his life around and that i was responsible for that with just taking that time out you know those brief moments where we take someone to the side and and you try to sit there and reach through to that person um he that was a, a life-changing you know moment for him so for to hear that feedback especially after all the calls of service that we get that are negative or some complaints here and there or just not being able to change the world like you think you're going to when you first come on the department. Um, to have that young man come to me and tell me that made the whole career worth it. If I can change one person, then then I've done my job. And I was fortunate enough to have uh, a couple more people after that do the same thing. If, if it was talking about how I treated them when I arrested them um, to a drug um, user coming back to me after he had done his prison stint and, and I was on a call for service and, and he approached the car and I was kind of in this, uh Oh, I remember him. Does he remember me? <laughs> and you know, he had done some federal time, um, for the amount of drugs he had on him when I had pulled him over and, and he came up to me and he, he asked me, he goes, do you remember who I am? And he was stern and you could tell, you know, it was going to go one way or the other with this. And so, um, <laughs> So when we were talking, he, he said, I just want to let you know you saved my life. He goes, I understand I got charged for this, this, and this, but that was personal use. And it was a, a huge amount, you know. So um, methamphetamine was going to take his life, and, and he, he thanked me for saving it. So um, those moments in particular stick out. There's a couple more that uh, are like that. And again, you know, if you can have someone come back and give you that feedback within your career, you've done a great job. You know, that, I, I'm really glad you brought that up. You know, um, one of the things that, that I think police officers around this country fail to understand is the significance of what they do every single day. You know, you, you and I, you know, we both had long police careers. And sometimes you may handle 12, 15, 20 calls a day where you're interacting with someone who probably it's one of the worst moments of their life, whether they're going to jail or they're in a domestic, whatever the case is. Nobody invites the police over to, to, to give them ice cream and say what a, what a great day they're having. Um, and so it, it almost you can lose yourself in, in, in the mundanity of handling all these calls without with failing to realize that every single time you have an interaction with another human being. Um, you have the potential to change a life. And I, I really wish that, that we as law enforcement professionals 
uh, would talk more about that, and and I think it might actually help in in the in the uh, uh, decisions that officers make to retain you know their their identity on the job or or to you know decide to leave the job because of the the things that are taking place politically or um, you know interpersonally because when you when you understand what you the significance of what you just said that uh, that literally every time you have a contact with somebody you're leaving a little bit of yourself behind and so um, I'm really glad that you retained that that understanding and and because people came up to you and said it and that's that takes a lot of guts of them you know what I'm saying Absolutely. Um, and that was one of the fundamentals when I was a field training officer. I reminded them that just like you said, we're going into their house. It is the absolute worst time for them. We take that for granted sometimes and we can sit there and lose sight of that. So it's always important to instill in new recruits and, and remind and, and refresher courses too, that when you walk into that house, they will remember if, if you have ketchup on your uniform, if you're untucked, <laughs> if you don't look good. Um, they'll remember every single word you say. We won't. We, you know, we're, it's just like you said, 12, 15 calls a day. Some of them are mundane, but for them, it's the absolute most paramount time that they need us. They reached out to us. It's their worst moment. And so they will retain all that. So it's really important to remember our professionalism and going that extra length to help somebody out when they reach out to us. You know, it's evident from the conversation that you and I are having right now, um, how much joy and satisfaction you got from being a cop. You enjoyed, you enjoyed it, didn't you? I did. I, I miss the uniform still to this day. Um, you know, my life's taken a turn and, and I can help people in other ways, hopefully. But I, I love putting the uniform on. There are certain times, obviously, everybody is going to go through that phase where you, you know, you get a little down on the, the department or, or the city that you're, you know, responding out to. You know, there's, there's political stuff, like you said, that play, plays into it. But overall, I couldn't have loved it more. It was a great time. So I want to talk to you now about how that ended. Um, let's let's go and talk about your partner because um, that that relationship and that significance is what is what created um, the issues that uh, that eventually ended your police career. Um, talk to me about your relationship with with uh, your partner and let's talk about let's talk about him. Sure. We we uh, we, uh, Joe, we honor him by talking about him and talking about Absolutely. what he what he meant to you. Well, and that's that's the important thing. I want to get his story out. Um, it's about the way he lived. It's it's about the the friendship that we had and and his family. Um, Joe Morgan. Uh, I met him early on in my career. I got prom or I got hired and I went through field training, obviously. And when I hit the streets, I was on the city's east side, and he was a member of that squad. Um, I was fortunate enough early on in my career to actually become a two-person vehicle or car, element, person, all those different ways you can talk about it. But um, so, you know, we got a lot of the hawk calls. We, we were responding to those two-man trips. Um, we were partnered for years. We had the uh, uh, honor of cops joining us and riding with us. However, um, he got most of the takes and I was in a different car during that time. But um, the friendship that you that you 
get from being in a car with somebody eight to 10 hours a day. And then you continue that friendship outside. You know, we would go out, we would go to each other's homes. Um, we really became part of each other's family. Um, and so, you know, you, you're basically with that person constantly depending on them and you become really close. I mean, your life depends on each other and, and you start to know what each other's thinking in those moments, how you're going to respond um, and what the other one's going to react like. So it, it became a very close relationship early on. You know, and, and the significance of, the, of what you just said, you know, in, in essence, sometimes being a partner um, with an individual that, well, first of all, not all partners even get along. Right. You know, sometimes sometimes it's oil and water. Sometimes, you know, there's personality issues. But when that respect, that mutual respect and that and that both of you have the same drive to achieve the policing that you that you both agree on, that's a magical that's a magical relationship. And you literally can spend more time with your partner than even with your wife and family sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, he had been on the department two years longer than I had, but he came from another department prior to that. And he would toot his own horn from time to time and sit there and talk about how he was the chief of police in Oxford Junction, um, uh, which is a small, small dot on the map in Iowa. So I think they had two police officers, him and, and one person who was a part timer. So, you know, he had some experience. And uh, so we kind of balanced each other out. You know, I had just hit the streets. I was fresh. He'd been there, done a lot of that. And so it was one of those great relationships where it just, it, it gelled and it worked. And I'm sure if, you, if, if he was the chief of a two-man department, I'm sure that, that um, you never let him forget that. Oh, absolutely not. In fact, <laughs> he even talked about it on Cops when they did an intro for, for his show, and he was talking about not to toot his own horn. That's a direct quote from him. So <laughs> it was funny. Um, he, he took a lot of razzin over all that, yeah. So how long were you guys partners? Between two and three years. Um, and then we remained close. Um, we were on the, you know, our watch offices were side by side. I had went to day patrol for a while. He was still on what they called third watch patrol. So that was evenings. Um, the action, so the action shift. The action Correct. shift. I, right. I left, went to days for a while. Um, it was, you know, conducive for kids and young, young family. Um, lucky enough to even hit days at that point, you know, but uh, it got to be a younger watch. So it wasn't quite the grazing field, if you will, you know, that some people call it, you know, day patrol. A lot of people don't think a lot happen on happens on day patrol, but we still get our bank robberies, our fun stuff. Um, but all in all, just the hours were more conducive for me. He, he kept trying to get me to come back and work for him. And, and I told him, I said, hey, the only way I'm coming back is if I'm a sergeant alongside of you. I'm not coming back and working for you. I'll, you know, he wanted me to be his understudy. And um, it was just, you know, we did the back and forth. But so we maintained contact daily, you know, and we continued that really close bond um, through 2020. All right. Now, let's I know this is going to be painful to talk about. It always is when you're dealing about when you're talking about um friendship and you're talking about loss um you lost your you lost your friend and would you, you would you you know talk about um you know what happened how well first of all let's go back to this when did you learn that he had committed suicide i had just got off shift um i went home i had changed i was getting ready to do things with the family um and i got a phone call from a sergeant on our watch 
who called and told me over the phone that uh, Joe Morgan had died by suicide, which at that moment, I didn't even believe him. You know, someone's delivering me this news. I thought it was a sick joke because, you know, there's categories, you know, you can think of people in the department or that, you know, that you would put on one side of a column that says possible. And then there might be another one that's nah, not really. And then there's one that's on the other side that you just would never have thought that that person um, would die by suicide. And that's where Joe was. So f- to comprehend that, you know, like I said, I thought it was a sick joke. I actually yelled at him, um, told him it wasn't funny. And then he repeated it. So um, Joe and I live five minutes or less from each other. So uh, I immediately got in my car and went to his house where the incident had happened. Talk about that. Um, you know, it's it was pretty surreal. It, when I pulled up, squad cars and fire trucks, ambulances uh, were on both sides of the street. You know, so you have your blue and red lights going, and there's crime scene tape in the front of the house, and. Um, and he had uh, died by suicide in his personal vehicle. He was off duty. There was a meeting down at the department. He was supposed to attend um, within an hour or two. Um, he had actually left his residence, went to a convenience store to pick up um, a Coke or a pop, whatever you want to call it. Um, his wife had noticed that he had been gone for quite some time, and um, their whole family had that sharing your location and when when she pulled him up he was in the driveway and so when she went out she she found her husband um with gunshot wound to the chest in his vehicle oh my god i i you know when when you when you talk about that the the visual aspect and the comprehension of what of of that discovery um it's it's so disturbing it's it's just it's a horror it's an absolute horror and then you pull up to the scene where did it go from there um when i pulled up and walked up um i immediately lifted the tape the crime scene tape and there was a captain and a lieutenant from our department um, this happened outside of our jurisdiction, excuse me. And so it happened in the suburb. Um, so, you know, the Urbandale Police Department, the suburb of Des Moines, they were there. Um, Joe, my partner, had been pulled out of the vehicle at that point, and um, his shirt had been taken off. So I was able to see that he had a uh, gunshot wound center mass to the chest, which just didn't make sense to me. Um, so at that point I was thinking that he had been shot, uh, was this accidental? Um, so, you know, I, I was able to see certain parts of the vehicle. Um, one of the things I won't, you know, forget is, I mean, his, his, uh, sandal was still there on the, uh, hanging outside of the door. The door was still open. His, uh, his beverage is right there in the center console and, and in the passenger seat, there, there were two other beverages specifically bought for his daughter who was at home and for his wife. So trying to wrap your mind around, okay, so he left, he went and bought these things and then he came back. 
again, was this an accident? Was this something where somebody had, had shot him? And, um, but looking at the evidence that was there and being able to see that, um, it was pretty evident that this was self-inflicted. Um, then I kind of had this weird dynamic if I wanted to be there with him, that's my partner. You know, we had, we had spent so many years together on the streets, chasing people, fighting with people, um, giving all of us to each other, basically, so to speak. I mean, we knew each other inside and out, um, which plays into the, you know, later where the guilt of not understanding or not seeing anything or him not coming to me, that really messed with me after that. But, um, but I wanted to be out there with him, but then I wanted to go inside and, and, and find his wife, Jen, and, and his, his child. And, and so that's what I did. But then I went back outside and I felt that duty to be with him, make sure he was, you know, taken care of and, and everything was handled appropriately. All right, we're going to get back into that. Unfortunately, we have a hard break uh, for a couple minutes. So um, we'll be right back with you um, and continue this. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. In 2008, people could spend an average of 12 seconds on a task without becoming distracted. Five years later, it was only eight seconds. The digital age is narrowing our attention span. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top, shoot it down. Thousands of five-star reviews proves it works. Supercharge your brain and see the difference. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. 
Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. One Nation Coffee. One Nation Coffee. Patriotic, uh, veteran-owned, very, very good coffee. I actually went down and visited their roasting facility and met with the folks down there, uh, John and his crew, and they are amazing people. The coffee is delicious. You order it online, they bring it right to your house. You can get the ground coffee, you can get beans. I like to grind my own. They've got uh, also got these, uh, you know, the the containers that you put in your Kerrig or whatever that thing is called. So um, One Nation Coffee, go to onenationcoffee.com, order your coffee, and uh, you'll get great coffee, and you'll be supporting uh, a patriotic company that supports the wounded blue. So uh, go to onenationcoffee.com. I want to tell you about another company that uh, does uh, some really, really important work for law enforcement, and it's called OfficerPrivacy.com. You you listen to that term. What does OfficerPrivacy.com mean? Well, it's uh, it's a company that that arose to help protect police officers from information that is out there all over the Internet. Um, When when the the owner of the company came to me and we, we had a discussion, he told me that, Randy, you have no idea how easy it is to find information, personal information, identifying information on the Internet about you. And I said, really? And, and then he proceeded to show me. And uh, I, was, I was absolutely startled. Well, now, in this day and age where law enforcement officers are being targeted everywhere in their patrol cars, also at their homes, um, you know, there's, there are people out there who hate you and they will do anything to bring trouble your way so we owe it to ourselves we owe it to our families if you are a cop or you have been a cop you're still at risk so contact officerprivacy.com see what they can do um they actually all their employees are are cops or ex-cops and they actually go into the internet and remove information it's amazing what they do it's really really um, it, it's it's complicated, and they don't charge a whole lot for it. You owe it to yourself. You owe it to your family. Go to officerprivacy.com and uh, and check it out. Tell them Randy sent you, and uh, maybe they'll buy me a beer or something. <laughs> so officerprivacy.com. Um, I also want to talk to you about the Wounded Blue. The Wounded Blue is the organization that uh, is the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is a nationwide charity, and it is staffed by only police officers or their, or in some cases their spouses, because we provide peer support for injured and disabled officers all over this nation, not just for the officers, but for their spouse and family as well. Um, it's really critical to know after you've been hurt, either physically or emotionally and psychologically, that someone cares. 
The unfortunate reality is that many officers, once they become injured or disabled, are simply thrown away. It's hard to believe, but it is the reality of policing. Um, if you get a chance, go to Amazon.com and rent the Wounded Blue documentary film. It'll blow you away. Um, it was a film uh, created by uh, retired police sergeant um, Jason uh, Harney, who had retired from Las Vegas Metro PD, is now an amazing f documentary filmmaker. Um, and it'll, it'll, it will really expose the truths of how, how many police officers are simply abused and thrown away once they become injured and disabled. So I, if you're a law enforcement officer and you're struggling, um, there are people that care. Go to the website, uh, which is thewoundedblue.org, or go to our, you know, check it out. We've got a, a hotline number as well. Reach out to us. Um, we are the blue family that you were promised, and our entire team is made up of cops who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up, and screwed over. So check it out. Um, and also, please, I, I literally beg you, go to thewoundedblue.org, hit that donate button, and give what you can, even if it's $10 a month. That $10 a month can go a long way to fund the programs that the Wounded Blue has. So thewoundedblue.org, if you are a company and you want to support the Wounded Blue in a larger way, support us through sponsorships, contact me directly, randy at thewoundedblue.org. That's randy at thewoundedblue.org. Our motto, as you can read on my shirt, never forgotten, never alone. Let's get back to our guest. You know, I hated to take a break right then because, I mean, we're talking about your discovery of your partner, your friend, dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound in his driveway after his wife discovered him. I, I, it's such a surreal description to me. And I, uh, having, having been in similar circumstances, where I I was on, on the scene of people that committed suicide that that I was friends with, um, I I understand it. Although everybody processes that differently, so you're you're being you're torn between wanting to be there at the side of your partner, but also you know providing solace to your friend's wife. Let's talk about that. Um. Yeah. I mean. It, it was a weird uh, push-pull that I was feeling. You know, I felt obligation to be there for the family, but at the same time, I wanted to be there by my brother who had been there by me, you know, throughout our career together. Um, so it was a back and forth. I, you know, I did the best I could in, in, in my perspective to help the family, but also to make sure that he was taken care of properly as well. So did he had children as well? He did. He had two. Um, his youngest one was still in high school at the time. I can't imagine the scene at that house. No, I mean, both his children, Ava and Andrew, were there. Um, there was a lot of police officers. The one thing that I noticed um, is that uh, any top brass from our department were not present at the scene during during that time there was you know the captain from the the patrol watch that it, you know it happened under and the lieutenant um and then there was a couple people from peer support from the department who were there for the family but one thing that i noticed and and uh was just the chief the assistant chief uh all the majors 
not, nobody, nobody went out to the scene for the family that night, which surprised me, um, you know, from coming from 21 years of, you know, or at that time, 20 years of we're a family, you know, we, we protect each other, we do for each other. Um, I would have thought that that would have been a response. I mean, it was enough of a shock to me that I wanted to be there and make sure that it was as, as, it, as it was said it happened, um, if you will. So, you know, it, it was it was a shock to me that that the top brass worked there. That later played a little more significance um, in your life, if I if if, if I'm understanding, um, their unwillingness uh, because I mean clearly the brass knew uh, that that this had taken place, and yet they were AWOL. Yeah, they they responded back, or some of them were still at the department. So um, their duty that night was to submit an email to all the rest of the department and just kind of outline what had happened. But other than that, I didn't see anybody from the chief's office and down until that next morning in roll call, which, again, you know, I I'd spent most of that. It, it happened early in the evening. Um, but I was there at that house until, you know, I don't even remember. Uh, it was two, three in the morning. We had a procession up to um, Urbandale, provided a really nice gesture. They, they provided a, a procession to the um, uh, coroner's office. Thank you. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about all the stuff that happened that night, and I'm getting a little stuck. But, yeah, so they, they preside, uh, pro provided a procession up to the coroner's office. We had two officers who stayed there voluntarily, thinking that there would be, like a, I don't, for lack of a better term, casket watch or honor watch to make sure somebody was there with Joe um, before he got transported back to uh, the funeral home. So, which um, would, night, which would have been at the direction of the chief or someone in the brass, but that didn't happen. If it, correct. If it occurred, yes, that would that would have definitely been something that the chief would have uh, set up. Um, so that next morning, 0600, I was in roll call, um, ready to go out and hit the streets again. Probably not a great idea. Hindsight being 2020, they should have pulled me off the streets, knowing the relationship that he and I had. Um, found something else for me to do, told me to go home, you know, anything would have probably been better. I mean, I'm on autopilot that whole day and, and I'm out taking trips and calls for service and, and my mind obviously isn't there. In that moment, yeah, I was told by my department and city attorneys that I should have been aware of where my head was at at that time and that, that I'm responsible for taking days off when I need them, but somebody shouldn't have to tell me that. But again, if, if, if we were really looking at things properly, if we're taking care of each other, then there should be that there to take care of that officer who's, you know, just been at that critical incident, which that became a discussion whether it was a critical incident or not as well um, in the future. Um, unfortunately, um, that wasn't the case. And, and I'll never forget at roll call 0600, the chief walks in with the, the top brass and his direct quote was to all of the people there in roll call, by now you all know Sergeant Morgan has taken his life. We're never gonna know why, and I kid you not, the end of his quote is, and we're not gonna waste time trying to figure it out. What? what? He- Absolutely. He said this to your cops in, a, in briefing? 
Yes, roll call. So you have 30-some police officers in there the day, yeah. the morning after it happened. And he literally said, I'll say it one more time, because I'll never forget it. By now, you all know Sergeant Morgan has taken his life. We're never going to know why, and we will not waste time trying to figure it out. Absolutely. You know, I when I think that I can't be shocked by the callousness of some of the police leadership that I, I hear these stories about, then you, then you tell me something like this. And it and it's just it's that's mind boggling. So, right. All right. So now, besides the words he just said, besides the fact that he he uttered those unconscionable words, how did that affect the way you felt about the leadership and about the disrespect to your friend? Well, I was absolutely soured right there in the moment. Um, I was. I think I was in a. I was in shock from the day before or the the night before, and then I was shocked at what he would have said. And I'm and and it's hard to wrap your mind around that. Again, you've been with a department. He wasn't the chief the entire time. Um, I'd had several chiefs, but it was always that same message: these are your brothers and sisters in blue. This is a family. We take care of each other. And I bought into that 100% as it should be. Um, but but then you see the cracks. And you see that maybe certain leaders don't truly believe what they're selling you. Yeah, exactly. They'll say the words, they'll check the boxes, but their Absolutely. actions their actions speak completely differently. All right. So, th so this moment now, you're you. This is the day after your friend, your partner killed himself. You go back to work the next day. That began, a, that, that was a life-changing moment for you. And I, I want you to talk about now, from that moment on, I mean, let, let's, let's see, we're going to call this, these two parts of your life, um, BJ, like uh, before Joe, and AJ, after Joe's suicide. Would you say that that was a demarcation mark in your life? Oh, absolutely. My life has changed. Um, who I was prior to that day, um, all of that is completely different. And, and there, it is, it's absolutely true. Before Joe and after Joe, after that incident, um, I was tormented. Um, there's a lot that plays into that. Um, that. That next day I got called into the assistant chief's office and during our conversation, I had stated that we need mandatory counseling for all officers. Our department didn't have that. They had peer support, um, and, and I believe in peer support. It's as good, though, as the people who you have on the list. Um, so that was provided. But then, then there was an email that was put out by somebody who affiliated with that, and, and they basically in the email stated that if Joe would have only reached out for help, um, Basically, he would be here still. Um, so, so lay, laying, lay, laying blame on him. Correct, correct. And and then later stating, well, it was his choice to do that. Um, and you know, everybody has their different philosophies on on that stuff. However, you know, first responders' jobs are so encircled with all this violence and chaos, and 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 we live in. I came on the department in two thousand, and it's very much of the got to go to your next call. 
So you, you witness this stuff, you're a part of this stuff, and then you compartmentalize it, you, you stuff it down, and you move on to the next call, and you're expected to do so. Um, nobody, nobody really went around talking about these things, which that, that's got to change, obviously, if we're going to try to help you know, people um, more and more. But it's got to be the philosophy of your department. And when it isn't, there's a huge issue. So I did present, we had to have mandatory counseling. The day after he had passed, um, you know, I approached that subject and, and the assistant chief was like, well, what would that look like? And I, at that point, you know, it's fresh. And, and I just said, I think everybody needs to go at least once a year, at least once a year. Um, and that way we can get them to the table. What they choose to do with that hour that they're there, you know, that's up to them, but it, it destigmatizes the fact that you reached out. Now it's mandatory. So you can say, yeah, I had to go to counseling, but nobody knows what you talked about there. Nobody knows that you did that and you're not different from anybody else because they all have to do that. So that was the day after. Um, how was that? How was that, that received? Um, you know, the assistant chief actually listened and um, we had a dialogue about it. There was no follow up. Uh, you know, I told him I wanted to be a part of that and I really wanted to implement that. And, and I was never contacted again about it. Um, in that same meeting, you know, it was brought up again, not knowing why uh, Sergeant Morgan would have taken his life. And, and I probably didn't endear myself um, to the top commanders. This, the assistant chief and the chief both had been in there at this point. And, and I said, I don't think there's a coincidence that this happened two hours after the lieutenant's promotional list came out and then all the transfers came out. Um, Joe had an end game long prior that I was very aware of. He wanted to at least be a lieutenant when he retired and he was getting close to that age. He only had a couple more years left. He had applied, been top of the list, I think three or four different times to get promoted and uh, to lieutenant. He made a list every time, top scores, and we all know how things go in different departments. You know, you might be top of the list, but if you're not politicking for yourself um, and shaking hands, then you might not get it based on merit. So my belief and Joe's belief were we should be recognized for what we've done. And it should be about, you know, what you've done, who you are as a person, not who you are trying to get into their inner circle, so to speak. Um, so you have your fast track people and, and we just didn't align ourselves in that. We, we went out and did our jobs. Um, so I think that that hindered him. I think he needed politic a little bit better for himself, but that was just one of those things where that was kind of a, we didn't necessarily want to have to do that. Um, so he had gotten passed over. And in fact, this last list he didn't make, he took the test, but he just was like, I'm, I'm never going to get this. It's too close to retirement. Um, that's what he told his wife. And um, so he didn't make the list, but was that the end all be all? That's absolutely not. You know, there needed to be more discussion and, and looking at, at what had happened to figure out truly what had happened with Joe, uh, what he was going through. Um, but that dialogue, again, never happened. Um, the last time the chief of police or anybody um, in that, for that matter, from that office um, reached out to his widow was at the funeral. And again, at the funeral, um, he handed his eulogy that he had wrote into the limousine where Joe's family was and his parting words to them were chin up Morgan family. And that's it. That's the last time they ever heard anything from him. Chin up. You know, I'm, so I'm, I'm almost speechless, Joe. I'm, I'm, uh, 
Matt, I, I, you, you just told me something that I, I know it exists. I know it happens. I've heard this. I've heard similar stories before, and yet it's still so shocking to me, the callousness. But okay, so let's talk about the funeral. Let's talk about that. Right. I mean, funerals. Yeah. Funerals are very significant. Uh, very significant when it comes down to closure. When it comes down to, I mean, that funerals are part of the police culture. Um, Absolutely. And and every department handles um, funerals differently. I can tell you, with Las Vegas Metro, every there's the only the the only difference between a line of duty death and and a death is that we're, there's a procession for a line of duty death, and and there is uh, um, you know a little more significance as far as the size of the funeral. But the others, I mean, every police officer that dies um, after serving honorably gets a 21-gun salute, gets taps played, gets a, fold, a folded flag handed to the, the widow or the, or the widower, and that dignity happens no matter what the cause of death is. What, what happened with Joe? Well, um... You know, and it's going to be explained by the department one way, um, and, and that's exactly what happened, but then they contradicted themselves. But um, usually any type of funeral or, or that type of thing, you're in dress uniform, especially, obviously, line of duty deaths, right? Um, so Joe's uh, funeral, I was expecting, even though he had died by suicide, I was expecting the chief of police to be in his dress uniform. He was not. Um, he actually, um, from what I understand, sent an email out stating that they were not wearing dress uniforms. So everybody from lieutenant, captain, major, uh, assistant chief, and chief all have special dress uniforms within this department. Um, he sent out a directive stating we will not be wearing dress uniforms, um, and, and it didn't really explain why. Um, we also have what we, you know, you have your uh, 1042 or your last call that they put over the air, dispatch puts that out. It's very important to the family, um, very important to the brotherhood and sisterhood. Um, that did not occur as well, which surprised me. Um, if you fast forward, because they're gonna say that that's reserved for line of duty deaths. Joe is an active uh, member of the department and he, 23 years unblemished service. And so doing it differently in my perspective is making it about the way this officer died, not about that officer's life. I personally, I don't think there should be any type of difference in these funerals just due to the fact of um, how the person died. Yes, I understand line of duty death is, is got different benefits. There's different things that go into it. However, um, when you make it about how they died and not how they lived, um, I think we're, we have a problem. Um, let me let me ask let me ask you this: um, in at other funerals that were not line of duty deaths, I mean, people die of cancer, people die of of, of old age, whatever it is. Um, at that, did, did were were cops told not to wear their uniforms at those occasions? Well, the funny thing is, it's not funny. Let me rephrase that. The tragic thing is, we had an officer who died of cancer months later. Um, in fact, the liaison with the department contacted Joe's wife, Jennifer, and asked her to attend. 
and she said, well, I just have one question. Are they going to be in dress uniform and are they going to give him a 1042? Not that he didn't deserve it. Again, this is a gentleman who died of cancer. He was an active police officer. I'm by no way saying he didn't deserve those things, but he got those. And so therefore now you have line of duty deaths and you have active member death who died of cancer Mm -hmm. and you have Joe who died by suicide and we don't honor him but we honor everybody but him. So what message does that send to the rest of the department? Mental health, and if you have a problem within that, and if you struggle, you will not be recognized by your department. You are you are outcast. To take that further, the chief literally say, stated he consulted with psychologists, the city shrink, um, probably sounds bad to say city shrink, but city psychologists, and, and they told him that basically, the way in in layman's terms, if the, he wore his dress uniform, apparently people who are struggling with mental health who might be on that tipping edge of deciding whether or not they want to die by suicide, that possibly him wearing his uniform to Joe's funeral would give them that okay, and that they would go on and, and commit suicide or die by suicide just because he's wearing a dress uniform, which is... The most ludicrous thing I think I have ever heard in my life. If I'm in that hole and if I'm struggling that much, the last thing I'm thinking about is whether the chief of police is going to give me honors at my funeral. It just oh, wouldn't yeah. be there. Yeah, it's that, that's the absurdity of that is just goes along with uh, with everything else I'm hearing about how much this this uh, quote leader unquote um, j- literally just uh, uh, didn't care. Didn't d- didn't Absolutely. didn't care. Didn't observe even the the uh, the modicum of of respect for a police officer who served with distinction for decades. So so you know um, we're we're coming up uh, at at our hour and. Um, we haven't even really touched uh, where where I want to go with this interview. So, what I'd like to do, Matt, is bring you back next week for part two of this. Absolutely, um, and be, because I mean, we're we we've gotten to a certain level, and this is a probably pretty good stopping point. Is 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 the funeral, and then we're going to really get into uh, the aftermath and the and the you know the the significance of what took place in the uh, in the ensuing years. So I want to thank you for taking time to be here this week, invite you back for next week, and let's get more into this. I mean, I know that, that um, me asking you these questions and having this discussion brings up, um, brings up painful times, painful memories. So uh, I admire you for being able to, to talk about this with uh, with the respect that you do. And uh, I know that my audience here has been, um, you know, is, is learning something and feeling something from your words. And of course, this is also part of um, what your future mission is going to entail as well. So um, Matt Hunter, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on uh, the Wounded Blue Hour. And I look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you. I'll be here. I appreciate it. You know, this show is so important to tell the truth about law enforcement and about the the, the trials, the tribulations, um, 
the good, the bad, and the ugly. And sometimes there is some bad, and there is some ugly. And you're hearing it and, uh, on this show. Um, Matt's very brave for coming on and talking about stuff that is so personal. Uh, but that's, uh, that's part of who he is. Uh, I would ask this of you. Uh, go to thewoundedblue.org. See who we are. See what we do. Recognize that the significance of what we do can perhaps save the future Joes. Um, I can tell you this, that, that one of the things we have each year, uh, we just had our third annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. We've just put on our website the registration for next year's, the fourth annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. Um, it's a four days. It'll be uh, September 26th to 29th in Las Vegas at the fabulous Ahern Hotel, a fantastic boutique hotel just off the strip. Um, at, at our last one, a woman got up and said, if it weren't for the wounded blue, I wouldn't be here today, that I had every anticipation of taking my own life until I heard some of these speakers. That's the significance. That's the importance of what we do. So I ask you to do this. If you're law enforcement or have been, we recognize that once you take that badge off, it doesn't mean that, that all the issues stop. Sometimes it's just the opposite. And there is plenty for you to see, for you to hear, for you to do. Go to thewoundedblue.org. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's not expensive. It's $325 for four days. Includes your breakfast and your lunch. And some of the most incredible speakers that you will see. In fact, I'm trying to talk Matt into, uh, into coming to next year. So um, go to thewoundedblue.org. Reach out for help if you need it. Please help us by donating. And think about the 4th Annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. I'm Randy Sutton. Thanks for joining me here at the Wounded Blue Hour on the America Out Loud Network. See you next week.